Well, good morning, Calvary Church, and good morning to those of you watching us online. Uh, today, we're actually going to be looking at Psalm 8. We finished up our series in 1 Thessalonians last week. So you can turn your Bibles to Psalm 8, but some of you may remember if you were here at Christmas time, we talked about a project reading the Messianic Psalms. And you'll see in your worship folder this morning that project's in there for you again, just to remind you. But we looked at Psalm 2 because it was a wonderful preparation for us during Christmas season. Well, today we're looking at Psalm 8 because it's a good preparation for Easter season, and that's, about, that's coming upon us in just a few weeks. So here's a little refresher for you um, in case you missed it, but if you, we, we talked about how you know, all the Psalms are really messianic. They all talk about Jesus in some way, but typically they're divided into two categories. Uh, there are the 21 most recognized uh, messianic Psalms, and there are a bunch of them that are, that are related to his kingly office, and then the rest of them relate to his personal life. And so Psalm 2 is fulfilled in Jesus being our king, and today we'll be looking at Psalm 8, a wonderful psalm about Jesus being the perfect man the man that we would crown with our worship as well this morning. So if you also remember how to read the Psalms, I gave you some instructions on how it's important to read the Psalms through at two different levels. Reading it through in its original context, the best you understand, and going through it that way, and then reading it through in fulfillment and how Jesus Christ fulfilled the Psalm. And doing that multiple times and, and using the Psalm to help you in your worship and to stop in awe and wonder at who Jesus Christ is, is the perfect one, the fulfillment. And then offer prayers and praise to God and recognize these truths and how valuable they are to you in understanding and growing in your faith. Well, now on to Psalm 8 this morning, as C.S. Lewis admired, admiringly referred to it, a most exquisite lyric. Let me read it to you. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, in all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8. Well, Psalm 8, obviously you see verses 1 and 9 are identical. The beginning of the psalm, the ending of the psalm, it's a key to understanding Psalm 8. And when we read that, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, oh, this psalm is about praising God in his glory, yet when we look in the inside the psalm, it seems like the bulk of the content is really about humanity. So Psalm 8 then is a reflection upon the glory of God in the creation of humanity and the significant role that he has assigned for us to play. And even more than that, Psalm 8 goes beyond that. It would have us look at Jesus Christ as the perfect man. And Psalm 8 will point us to life in Christ, to Jesus as the perfect man given for imperfect men. 
And you'll see that as the psalm develops and we go through it. So let me pray for us as we begin. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word that you've given to us for this wonderful psalm that points us so well to your glory in creation and your glory in redemption. And we pray that you would guide us as we study and meditate today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Psalm 8 is really all about that. It's calling us to worship God for his glorious redemption of humanity by the perfect man. Psalm 8 praises God for his glory in creation, but most specifically so in his creation of mankind. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see God's glory in creation is declared and displayed and assured. And then in verses 3 to 9, that God's glory gets amplified through the creation and the redemption of man. Now, Psalm 8 has a superscription to it, uh, and it simply says, to the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. Now, we know what a choir director is, and we, but we don't know the date of the psalm or what it was used for yet. And as far as this Giddeth goes, there are two other psalms that have this in the superscription, the Psalms 81 and 84, but we don't really know what that is either. Some scholars believe it's an instrument, and it would be a Gittite lyre, an instrument probably similar to a Spanish guitar. Others think that it has to do with style of music, and it might be a festival song associated with uh, the wine press or some other kind of a musical term. And it appears that David is the author, or it could be written about him or for him, but regardless, the occasion seems to be that the psalmist writes this under the stars at night in wonder and in thought about the glory of God. So let's worship God this morning for His glorious redemption of man by the perfect man. Well, first, we praise God for His glory in creation. In verse 1, we see that it is declared, it is displayed, and then in verse 2, it is assured to us and announced by His weak ones. So Psalm 1, uh, verse 1 again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. So we're to praise Him because He deserves the glory, and as His people, we offer it to Him eagerly, adoringly, on a personal level. And you know, this isn't just repetition in the beginning. In the English, it might appear that way, O Lord, our Lord, but there are different words in the Hebrew. It's, O Lord Yahweh, You are our God. It's not repetitive. It's very specific because as members of His covenant community. We praise Yahweh as our God. We are His people, and our posture is to declare who He is in His glory specifically when we see what He has done. His name is majestic throughout all the earth, and His splendor is in the heavens. Did you see that? The earth and the heavens. All of creation is God's creation. And the glory of His name, meaning He as creator rules his creation, it is known, it can be seen and experienced by everyone in every corner of the earth, in every galaxy in space, his glory is displayed even. So, so much so, I mean, hopefully you enjoy, I mean, some of us do enjoy those nature programs, enjoy the astronomy programs. You know, those are just commentaries on Psalm 8. That's really what they are. And some of the things that we discover that we never see and no one has seen, 
God created all those things, all that beauty, all that power, just for Himself. To enjoy it. And to enjoy the greatness of who He is. Every corner of the earth, every place in the universe declares His glory. It's all to His glory. Genesis 1.1, the Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, for His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Psalm 19 begins, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And it will go on for six verses. Psalm 19 is a wonderful companion to Psalm 1. And we know that if we look, and when we look, we're going to find it. We're going to find His glory in His creation, and we're going to rejoice. And sometimes, that's the best praise that we can give our God, because our hearts and our minds are so full. I assume you've experienced that out in nature sometimes, observing. Do you ever find yourself as a Christian having verse 1 just come out of your mouth? Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. Your glory is above the heavens. Well, then we're called to give praise to the Lord God and all His glory, which is assured, and He has determined that He is going to announce it by His weak ones, in verse 2. Seems like such an out-of-place verse, but as we see the psalm, it's most exquisite. It says, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still, still the enemy and the avenger. I mean, what a contrast from this irrefutable glory in creation to this idea of silencing unbelievers by the weak ones. Yet, even in this, God gains glorious praise for Himself because He's going to confirm their words, and He's going to shame His enemies. In fact, verse 2 is actually part of the introduction to the psalm. It's announcing the theme, the theme that's going to be developed all the way through verses 3 through 8, and that God shows His strength and accomplishes His purposes through the weak, and He gets more glory this way on account of it, and, and through it, it's a, it's a greater victory. In fact, you know, it's more fun to watch the underdog win, isn't it? And for example, God says here, He meets the challenge of anyone who would challenge Him as Creator by the irrefutable response of children in a couple different ways it's meant. Most basically, they're beginning as infants and nursing babies. They're awe-inspiringness to us all, to everyone who sees God's glory in the creation of a human being and a life that's a sign of hope and promise that God is still at work in this world. And by extension, the psalmist means everyone who is weak but is strong in the Lord, we will announce the victory of God. But then it goes beyond that. As you probably know, once children can speak, they will often speak truth very boldly in the face of fear. In fact, many of us parents wish they weren't so bold sometimes, the things that they say about us. And in church history, it's well established that many children have been some of the bravest martyrs for Jesus Christ. 
Children, will, if they're trained well, will simply praise the Lord with all their being. I remember one of our daughters when she was really young, and she just had her own little tape recorder, and she'd just make up her own praise songs and sing into that microphone and record them very loud, very boldly about who Jesus was and why he loves her and why she loves him. You see, their words, the words would become impenetrable truth ringing out. It's the perfect praise given to God. It's a perfect way to silence people who think they're so strong and they're so proud and that they are just, and those who despise God. And God will confirm the truth of what they say. In other words, he's appointed them as his prophets, his heralds, his announcers of what is to come that is summed up in the book of Habakkuk in chapter 2.14 where it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now consider for a moment the ultimate silencing. The weakness of the coming holy infant, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment when he came into this world as the ultimate weak one. The announcement in heaven that the Son of God would be made incarnate was a, was a, was a startling shock to the demonic world, but this electrifying wonderment to the angelic world who want to look into the things that God would be doing and examine how he would save mankind, and he, they would serve the Lord Jesus in his time on earth. How could it be? How would it redemption come that the Son of God, the one from eternal glory, would take on human flesh, become an infant? But then you jump ahead to, of course, the turning point in history and the plan of salvation in Jesus Christ and how God would silence his enemies by Christ who himself referenced children and this psalm. In Matthew 21, on Palm Sunday, which is coming up for us in a couple weeks to celebrate, this is what's recorded. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, meaning Jesus, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, have you never read Psalm 2-2? Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now back to Jesus Christ himself for a moment at the crucifixion. He appeared quite weak, but he conquered sin and death and conquered hell for his people. And he was raised gloriously from the dead, ascended into heavenly glory again, and he will return in open glory when he brings his kingdom in its fullness. And so in Psalm 8, God's glory in creation is not only just declared and displayed for us, but it's assured. It, will eventually, it would eventually come in the incarnation of the Son of God from glory, at his cross of glory, in his resurrection of glory, in his ascension, and his reign on high in glory, and his return in glory. I hope you see that the weakest worshipers are stronger than the strongest enemies, because God is with him and against his adversaries. 
and God will see to the establishment of the glory of His name and the honor of those who trust in Him. There's nothing to worry about in this world. We can be confident in our weaknesses and glory in them even for the glory of God, trusting His plans, that everything that He orchestrates in our lives leads to His greatest glory and our greatest good and joy in Him as His children. I hope you see that actually in the psalm, the role that the weak ones play, that's our role, it's so empowering. You see, because we don't have to be strong. We don't have to win. We don't have to have power. We really don't. When we focus on those things as the world would focus on, then we're off. And you know what? We become depressed, just like the world. But the gospel is much more important. And our God delights in the fact that it's His feeble, dependent people that have this forthright, bold faith to declare in the face of the world the gospel in all of its glory. And He gains greater glory for Himself when we do. Worship God for His glorious redemption of man, of weak human beings. That's who we are by the perfect man who would become one of us. So second, we praise God because His glory is amplified in the psalm as it continues on to verse 3 and following. It's amplified in His creation of humanity and eventually in His redemption of humanity. So in other words, now we see this theme that's announced in verse 2 actually developed for us and unpacked in its meaning so we hear beginning in the, the smallness of man, this is an easy way to remember it. So verses 3 and 4, that's the smallness of man. Verses 5 and 6, that's the greatness of man. So verses 3 and 4 talk about our smallness as human beings. We're puny. But then when we read verses 5 to 8, we're elevated because we also learn about God's purposes for us in His image and redemption and our greatness so let's begin with verses 3 and 4. He says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you would care for him? So obviously this comparison is being made between this heavenly creation under the stars at night with no city lights in the way and a comparison to looking at oneself and it always leads to the wonder of how small we are. Now, I remember when I was pastoring a church in Northern California, it was very easy to get out away from the city and just look up and see all the stars that God has made. And the, and the nights were almost always clear. Sometimes I'm wondering if in New Jersey you ever get to see the stars. So, but I did find them the other night, this week. I made sure I went out and looked. They're there. But we've all experienced that. You know, maybe it's on a camping trip or a mission trip or whatever it might be. Sometimes we just go out and we look at the stars. If you haven't done that, you should go do that. That's your homework assignment. Or take a telescope and look even deeper. But, you know, you can take Psalm 8 with you when you go. If you've memorized it, that's wonderful. But you do have a Bible and it's even printed for you this morning. So you just take it out there with you and use it to speak about the glory of God in His creation. 
You know, today we know that there is so much more out there than all we can just see with our eyes. And, and that magnifies God even more because it shows us how even much more smaller we are. And so we should eagerly read those science reports that come out because they just amplify over and over again the truth of Psalm 8. And notice that the psalmist calls the heavens the work of God's fingers. Now, obviously, God doesn't have fingers, literal fingers, but this is a poetic way of saying how big God is. I mean, do you see the image? I mean, what appears so awesome, so large, so huge to us that we can't comprehend? Well, God just sort of plays around with it, with his fingers. That's how big he is. Isaiah 40 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And so, after seeing and considering, the psalmist, after he sees and considers the heavens, and we do the same, we naturally ask the question in verse 4, it just comes out of our mouths, well, who am I? What am I? I mean, the answer is obvious. We've all felt it. I'm nothing. I'm insignificant. And of course, to the unbeliever, to the materialist, to the evolutionist, they all have to answer that with those words that I'm insignificant in great despair. But of course, many people just put a smile on their face to cover up their sense of fragility. And then there are those, of course, who know they have to worship something, but instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship the creature and the things He's made and make up some foolish religion. But you know, the believer answers in the same way. We're not any different because we're human beings as well. And we look at the heavens and how big they are, and then we look at ourselves and we say, who am I? But we do it with humility and knowledge that God has also said many things more in His Word about this. The question for us and the answer is not really one of despairing and discouragement, but really of astonishment. And so we say with the psalmist, what is man? And what we say and what we observe is that man's glory is, seems like it's nothing in comparison to the glory of the heavens. They're filled with such beauty, such wisdom, such power, such wonder of God. And so we mean, why God do you even remember who we are and care for us and attend to us? In fact, why would you even care for me? And we wonder then at God's goodness in general to the world, to people. In fact, this is a bridge to our unbelieving friends because we feel the same way. We just have the answer in Scripture. And, and we wonder at God's goodness or His, His care for His creation, His special care for us as His people, and eventually we meditate upon His work of redemption and grace in our lives. And we think about what he did 
and why he would bother with us and how he would get it done in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the very fact that people can ask such a question means and seeks for an answer, that there is an answer. I mean, people are a special concern of God. He created people. We live in a world full of meaning, not in a world of meaninglessness. God created everything for our enjoyment, for our management, for our use, and for our praise of Him. When it comes to those words, you may wonder, the man and son of man, it's just a poetic way. They're synonyms here, speaking about our humanity. And just to jump ahead a little bit, you know, Jesus' favorite self-designation for, for, of course, himself was the son of man. But he's most often referencing the son of man figure in Daniel chapter 7, where it's talking about this divine son of man who would inherit the nations. But perhaps sometimes Jesus also used, and we read in the Gospels in the sense that it is here, where he assumed humanity as the Son of God. You see how much he cares? He became one of us. One in likeness to his creation, fallen and in need of redemption. Though he himself wasn't fallen, but he suffered and lived in and among fallen humanity among us. Well, then after the smallness of man comes the greatness in verses 5 through 8, where it says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So here's the answer to question four. What is man? Mankind is tremendously significant to God in His creation. He made him a little lower than the angels, than supernatural beings. And we are created lower than the angels in a few senses. One that's pretty obvious is power and strength. Angelic beings are much more powerful. I would advise you not to get into a fight with one. Visible glory. Their presence with God and their closeness to Him. So yes, we're made a little lower. But then we get even a little lower than that because the fall of mankind brought in mortality and death. And this inherent spiritual separation that pushes us even farther away from God to the point, of course, where we speak of our total depravity, that every faculty in our being is corrupted by sin. But at the same time, the psalmist goes on and speaks about how, in a sense, we're crowned higher than the angels in a way because we're created in the image of God. God has special care for human beings and especially for those He would redeem, us. The book of Hebrews talks about how He didn't redeem angelic beings. He came as a human being to redeem us. And then it's going to be our position will be even higher in eternal glory with Christ because the Scriptures talk about how we will play a role in the judgment of angelic beings. So this passage in verses 5 to 8, it should remind you of something else in the Bible. That's the book of Genesis. It should remind you of the account of man and woman being created in the image of God. 
Adam and Eve. We read about that in Genesis 1.26. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You know, there's so much that could be discussed about what does it mean to be created in the image of God? I mean, think about it though, we can never exhaust that subject because we'll never come to a complete knowledge and understanding of God in whose image we're created. So it's always going to, the Imago Dei, which is simply the Latin term that's very common for the image of God, the Imago Dei has so many dimensions to it. What does it mean to be created in God's image? We can talk about uh, moral image, we can talk about spirituality, we can talk about intellect, we can talk about functions, we can talk about our, our relationalness of who we are. Theologians for centuries have studied and enjoyed studying what it means to be created in the image of God because it magnifies God. But most basically, of course, it means that we're like Him and we represent Him in certain ways. And in this psalm, the focus is upon, as you can easily see, that human beings are God's dignified representatives, His ruler over His creation. I mean, all the animals are listed, tame animals, wild animals, birds and fish, yet all creation is being represented by these animals here. And you probably remember the accounts in the book of Genesis, where you know, Adam is the one who named the animals, and Noah was given animals for food. You see, we as human beings have been appointed by, by God as His governors and stewards of His earth, caretakers. And God has given us authority from His royal majesty to perform His will in this world. So you see, the Imago Dei, being created in the image of God, is our human dignity. It's where our significance comes from. It's where our self-worth comes from. It's where our sense of responsibility comes from. It's an extremely important doctrine because people are extremely important to God. And notice that the psalmist, I find this the most fascinating thing, is you read through this psalm, you almost wonder, did the psalmist forget about the fall? He doesn't mention it anywhere in here. Does the psalmist overlook, it appears that he overlooks the fall of mankind and, and the subsequent sinfulness of humanity that Scripture attests to and our own lives bear witness to. I mean, certainly the psalmist is unaware, not unaware of it, he's not denying it. Certainly he accepts it and knows it very well. But he is saying that though fallen, humanity still retains the image of God. Even though it's distorted and corrupted, there are different ways theologians have talked about this. Some talk about the fact that the moral image of God has been lost, but not the natural image. Perhaps one of the simplest ways to simply say it is that we are fallen image bearers. That's who we are as human beings. We are fallen image bearers. We still bear the image of God, but we are corrupted in our sin. But you see, he focuses our, intention, our, our, our attention on 
the created intention of God as a way of referencing his purposeful conclusion at the end of history. In other words, he speaks of the future in obscure way by looking at the pristine past as a way of getting us to look forward. He makes us consider to imagine, to hope for, to long for that somehow might God make this a reality again? I'd encourage you to spend time in the poetry of Psalm 8, the way God has given it to us, and to meditate on it, and to pray through it. You see, it would happen through our Lord Jesus Christ. He would bring in what the psalmist longs for. The Son of God, the incarnate God, would become the perfect image of God in man. This is what the writer of the Colossians says, begins in chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Continuing in the paragraph, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God become man. He's the perfect man, the Redeemer by His cross. And we are being renewed and restored into this original image for an eternal reality. The New Testament speaks about how we are being made like Christ to regain our full purpose as human beings. The book of Colossians continues in chapter 3 and says, put on the new self. We are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. The Lord Jesus Christ, you see, fulfilled the human vocation from Genesis 1 and from Psalm 8 with pure holiness, perfect obedience to the Father. And so He was and is, remains triumphant in His humanity. And eventually we're going to be like Him, and we're going to be with Him, and we're going to reign with Him. In 1 Corinthians 15 it says, As we have borne the image of the man of dust, so shall we bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, Jesus Christ is the perfect man already crowned from Psalm 2 and ruling and subduing His enemies, and yet He will come in His final conquest as the visible, in His visible kingly glory. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 and following says this about Jesus, For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says, Psalm 2, verse 6 is quoted, But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that it is, He is accepted who has put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. You see, God's glory is amplified in the psalm by speaking of the creation of mankind and eventually the redemption of mankind and His glorification. You see, in Psalm 8, as we read through Psalm 8, from beginning to end, the weakness of of humanity starts to give way to the crowning display of God's glory through Jesus Christ. That's the fulfillment of the psalm. And so the psalm ends exactly where it began, 
with the same words, but with fuller meaning and greater glory, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, today we remember the good creation of God as we read this, the terrible effects of the fall upon creation. And because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we know that there's an eternal restoration on its way. In Romans chapter 8, it's written, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we worship God who has redeemed us by the perfect man, imperfect people redeemed by the perfect one, Jesus Christ. So you see this psalm, Psalm 8, is about Jesus Christ like no other psalm in so many ways. You know, our Lord Jesus applied the psalm to himself, and so did his apostles. There's one final passage of Scripture I want to bring to your attention. It's the most obvious one you've probably been waiting for if you know the book of Hebrews. But this is the most developed passage that we should hear and consider as we close. Hebrews 2, if you want, you can turn there. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, or you can just listen. But Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 says this. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, in the psalm, and he is referring to Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and they're quoted. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 2 on your own. It is amazing how it talks about Psalm 8, and we can easily then see Psalm 8 is cited because of its messianic fulfillment in the coming of the truest Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ to whom all things are subject. Jesus has completed perfectly the vision of Psalm 8 and of Genesis 1, of God's intention for humanity. Jesus Christ is fully man in the fullest and truest sense, and we who are in Christ are under renewal to that end as well, and our ultimate perfection planned in Jesus by God. Jesus, as the resurrected, ascended, exalted man, is the pledge of our eternal victory, and He's given us His Holy Spirit in the meantime to confirm that in our souls and as we work out our salvation. Jesus was humiliated temporarily below the angels for the purpose of redemption of a new humanity by his cross. He has thus become the second Adam for his people, the redeemed ones, 
This is the Jesus, to use the language that we just read, this is the Jesus we see and know. In his suffering and death that brought him glory and honor, and this has benefited us eternally because of the destruction of all the enemies of our soul. Jesus is also ruling his kingdom from heaven right now. And we can be assured that we have a glorious and exalted destiny as human beings along with the Son of God who is like us. He is our brother, as the book of Hebrews says. At present, we don't see the full realization of all things being subjected to Jesus and to us as his people. The kingdom is already here, but yet it's not fully present. God has deferred the consummation till at an appointed time that best suits his wisdom and the fullest and greatest display of his glory. All things have been subjected to Christ, and nothing's been left out of his reigning authority and power. You see, to crown him as the perfect man is to marvel at him, to marvel at the incarnation, to marvel at his redemption, and to marvel at his glory. It's to worship God for his glorious redemption of man by the perfect man. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we crown you this morning, magnify you, glorify you. When we read Psalm 8 and we consider its purposes in speaking about just who we are as people and who you are as a redeemer, we also look to you, Lord Jesus, as the perfect one who accomplished what we could not because of our fallen condition. And you obeyed the law perfectly for us as your people. And grant us your righteousness as you paid for our sins on that cross and were raised to glory. We look forward to the final day when you bring Psalm 8 to its ultimate conclusion and you return in open glory and all things truly are subject to you and to us as your glorified and redeemed ones. And we pray all these things for your glory in your church, Lord Jesus. Amen.